Hey there, it's Alex. Just a really quick announcement before we get started here. We were totally booked out for our Cost of Glory Rome retreat this summer, 2024, June 30th through July 7th. But we've managed to make some adjustments and we've found room for another one or two slots. So if you're interested in visiting the great sites of Rome, discussing the merits of Rome's greatest men with me, and also improving as a speaker with the insights of ancient rhetoric and a whole lot of live practice and discussion, check out the retreat website at costofglory.com retreat. Hope to see you in Rome. Okay, now for the episode. We should hunt out not far-fetched or literary-sounding expressions, or extravagant metaphors and figures of speech, but rather the helpful pieces of teaching and the spirited and noble-minded sayings which are capable of immediate practical application. Let us learn them so well that what began as words may become deeds. That quote is about how to read so that you get something out of it, and not just something, but the right thing. So do you get the right things out of your reading? Well, that quote is from Seneca, the great Stoic writer. And I've got a lot of great quotes from Seneca to share with you today. Seneca, by the way, a man who spent his life hunting for useful things in texts. And actually, you know, you could argue that he was now and then guilty of doing the very thing that he criticizes in that quote we just heard. That is, Focusing mainly on the form of expression, on the you know extravagant metaphors, great figures of speech, uh, rather than learning the philosophical or self-improvement lesson that the text that he was reading was trying to impart to him. But Seneca, if you know anything about him, I mean, he'd be the first to criticize his own vices. He always preached the importance of being indifferent to wealth. And maybe that was in part because he was at the same time reputed to be the richest private citizen in Rome during the reign of Nero, and he he felt a little uneasy about it. That's a story for another day, but Seneca is really worth listening to all the same, because, especially on this topic, he became the sort of person that people hunt through his text in order to get the right things out of it. So today, I want to share a lesson from Seneca I'm Alex Petkus. You are listening to The Cost of Glory, where our mission is to retell the great lives of the great Greek and Roman heroes following the lead of Plutarch. But that quote that we just read about turning words into deeds, it is really central to our mission here at The Cost of Glory. How do we read, if you think about it, is a very important question. Most of us know that reading is valuable And we don't read nearly as much as we'd like to, most of us. That's certainly true for me. So how do we make it count when we do read? So I'm going to present to you a method today that can transform your life. And it's one that Plutarch himself used, too. And you could probably apply pretty much all of what I'm about to say to listening to podcasts as well, or consuming other kinds of content. But... Since I'm going to drop some ancient wisdom on you here, we're going to focus on that ancient practice of reading books. 
And you need to pay attention to what I'm going to say here because, as Seneca himself points out, nulli sapere casu optigit. That is, no one ever grew wise by chance. Now, I'm going to cheat to make my point today, and I'm going to use the thoughts of one of America's greatest and most influential living poets, and I don't say that lightly, it's Dana Joya. You might remember Dana Joya from, I mentioned him in the episode we did on Hercules when he went mad, that play of Seneca, which he's translated for us. Well, Mr. Joya has just come out with a short new book, Sentences from Seneca. It's a book that collects what he, the poet, thinks are basically Seneca's best one-liners from the Latin, from Seneca's Latin. So why Seneca in particular for this lesson? Well, here is Joya himself from his introduction. And Joya, by the way, is not just a great poet. He's also a great teacher in the spirit of the ancient poets, too, who were usually great teachers. Here's what he says about Seneca and his sentences in particular. Quote, What secured Seneca's posthumous popularity was his genius for short and memorable expression. And he's totally right here. Few philosophers wrote with such clarity or concision. Seneca is one of the two most quotable philosophers in the Western tradition. The other is Friedrich Nietzsche. Like Seneca, he was both a philosopher and a creative writer. Seneca's aphorisms have been read, memorized, and repeated for 2,000 years. They became part of how children learned Latin and how writers, including Montaigne, Shakespeare, and John Calvin, displayed their erudition. Seneca was a philosopher, but he was also a rhetorician. He intended his language to be persuasive and memorable. I'm still reading here. His father, remember, he mentioned Seneca's father earlier, his father had written a textbook on the art of verbal persuasion. He's talking about Seneca the Elder, who um, had all these episodes from his education that he remembered various figures giving speeches, and he recorded all their speeches down in a book called uh, Controversiae and Suasoriae. It's actually a couple of books. Anyway, going on here, Seneca realized that while rational argumentation might convince people what they remembered were his aphorisms, he worked hard to craft sentences that summarized his insights What public speaker doesn't appreciate the power of an indelible one-liner? As Cicero said, when you wish to instruct, be brief. And just going on a little bit more here about the sentence form in particular. In English, we call these statements maxims or aphorisms. Romans would have called them sententiae. This term is the root of our word sentence, which means a short, grammatically complete statement, as well as a formal judicial declaration of punishment. In Latin, however, sententia meant an opinion or feeling. In Roman rhetoric, a sententia came to represent a pithy statement that summarized the author's considered opinion. Sententiae appeared in every Roman literary form, in epistles, that is, in letters, in poetry, drama, history, and oratory, the two great Latin masters of Sententiae were Cicero and Seneca. It is not coincidental that both men were celebrated politicians. Their professions required the mastery 
of both written and spoken language. End quote. And he goes on in that introduction with a lot of insight on how, in a way, the sententia is a kind of art form of its own. And it's very akin to the poet's art, which is, first and foremost, the poet has to remember himself. And secondly, it is to make it easy for other people to remember. Because the poet is the one who knows the muses. The muses are, uh, according to mythology, the daughters of memory. So Seneca is playing that game, too, with his sententiae. He was famous for this in antiquity. Quintilian talks about it. So Seneca read all the poets that he could himself, and he was a poet himself. If you remember that episode on Seneca's Hercules, ancient tragedy writers like Seneca and Sophocles and Euripides, they wrote in verse, so he's a poet too. And Seneca, by the way, for reference, he's writing basically in the generation before Plutarch. They're rough contemporaries. Plutarch's a little later, middle of the first century AD. And I, I like to think of Seneca and Plutarch as very akin authors. They're, they're both two of the most influential, fantastic essayists in the Western tradition in general and in the classical tradition in particular. And Seneca is a lot more quotable than Plutarch. I think Plutarch is actually more influential, but his influence is kind of subtle and beneath the surface because often, you know, Plutarch has a lot of great stories and quotes from other people, from from famous leaders and generals. He, he packs his essay with these quotes. A lot of times there's overlap with the biographies. And so you can kind of cite, oh, Alcibiades once said, or Pericles once said, or Pompey once said, or, you know, you can you can bring in Plutarch without actually naming him by name. Whereas Seneca, you see quoted more often in, in people's essays because, you know, you kind of have to attribute it to Seneca for the quote to have its full force. So if you want good quotes, go to Seneca. If you want good material, go to Plutarch. But of course, go to both. They're both great and quotable and filled with great material. Okay. So I want to get to this tool that I want to give you. What we have in this book, Seneca's Sentences, is in a very old tradition of the commonplace book. This is a practice that great writers and speakers and people, men of action in general, have used throughout history to compile quotes and passages from their reading to make their reading count. Ronald Reagan did this in his own way. He had this stack of note cards that he kept in a Ziploc in his desk. And uh, they've been published in a book called The Notes. And uh, as the author uh, or the editor of that book, The Notes, observes, these note cards that were basically Ronald Reagan's personal commonplace book, they, they weren't just – so he would, you know, if he had a speech to give, toast to make at a banquet, he would, he would whip out the stack of note cards and rifle through and find something good or funny to, that he could just put into an impromptu speech. Uh, but it wasn't just that. They weren't just a tool for speaking. They, they really reflect the character of the man. They, they, in a way, summarize his worldview. They're almost like a kind of precy of his philosophy of life and politics. So Ronald Reagan kept a commonplace book, not just a way of sharpening his ability to speak off the cuff, but of 
sharpening his thought and even, even sharpening his character, crafting his character through his commonplace book. And that's very much what Seneca would have us do. So you can use this commonplace method if you speak professionally or if you aspire to speak professionally or if you want to write better. Coleridge did this, for example. I mean, the, the list of authors who've done this just would run off the page. Coleridge knew that this was kind of a training ground for a great writer. And, you know, he wrote The Rime of the Ancient Mariner, famous romantic poet. The commonplace book is also, for you aspiring writers out there, this is also the way that Plutarch composed, in a large extent, his essays and his biographies. And so, like, for example, if you read his book Spartan Sayings, it's basically a commonplace book of a bunch of sayings of Spartans. And if you go and read the Lysander section of his commonplace book, a lot of those quotes and crei, they're called these sort of like quotes in context, what Lysander said when somebody approached him and asked such and such question, uh, though, you know, the walls of Sparta are its men. That's actually a Gisileus. But, you know, so much of that stuff ends up in the biography of Lysander. And uh, similar with King Agesilaus of Sparta, there's a whole section t- devoted to Agesilaus, the, the most quotable of the Spartan kings. Well, Plutarch, there's all over his essays are passages that you'll find very similarly put as in the biographies. So if you're a writer, this is a good practice. But I think everyone should do this regardless of what you do professionally. I have a friend who's a corporate headhunter. He's a total amateur when it comes to the classics, but he just does this commonplace work religiously. And whenever you're around him, it's like you really feel like he's a gentleman scholar and and he applies these lessons to his life. He's fun to be around. He's always got something kind of wise or pointed to say or reflect on in a conversation. He's, he's, he never runs short of thoughts in person. So that's another application of the commonplace book. Now, when we're talking about this, you know, you can write down your own thoughts, but often they they really hit harder. If you can find these noble sentiments, these great thoughts expressed in great writers or in great speakers that you admire, they have more authority. They're often like put in a very punchy way. And when these thoughts, great sententiae that summarize some important principle of life, that you want to live by or that expresses your own views, when they're expressed well, memorably, they sink into your mind better and they sink into the minds of other people better. And that's really the point, the sinking in factor. So people talk about the commonplace book as a knowledge management system, as a knowledge storage system. It kind of is. But I think of it more as a knowledge assimilation system. So, you know, if you want to take Seneca's advice about, you know, making words into deeds, don't just make a commonplace book. But when you write it down, and it's best to do this by hand, you'll remember it better, whether you use note cards or a little booklet, try to dwell on the words and try to memorize that line. And revisit it after that. You know, you can start a habit with just five minutes a day in the morning. I like to do this in the morning early before everybody wakes up, before the noise of the day sets in. And not just 
commonplaces from your own reading are good, but you can use other people's commonplace books and make them your own by transcribing them in your own words. So in a way, what we have in uh, Dana Joya's new book, The Sentences of Seneca, it's kind of the Seneca section of the commonplace book of one of America's great poets, which is really cool because, you know, especially with ancient authors, sometimes a translator doesn't really translate a quote in the most quotable way. You know, often when I'm putting together an episode on Plutarch, I'll find a great quote, but, you know, the translator won't really bring it out, so I'll kind of modify it on my own. And so in this book, Sentences of Seneca, you've got a great quotable poet translating a great quotable poet and writer. So, all right, I just want to share with you, I think you get the idea, hopefully, about the commonplace book, um, but mainly I, I want to share you some examples and some thoughts about these examples. So many of these quotes from Seneca are pregnant. They kind of get me thinking about stuff from Plutarch. So I've got eight quotes for you, eight sentences from Seneca. And uh, the translations are drawn from this volume of Dana Joya's. And I'll, uh, I'll put a link to the book if you want to buy it for yourself in the show notes. So to start with, number one, no one becomes a laughingstock who laughs at himself. And I'll read the Latin for you as I'm going through these because he's got the Latin printed under the English too, which is nice, and the citation. Um, if you, uh, actually, if you read Thomas Jefferson's commonplace book, you can actually find that. It's been published. He's got these long quotes of Greek and Latin and French, and they're untranslated um, which is not uncommon for a man of his learning and stature of the day. The edition that I found has the quotes and the footnotes in, uh, in English translation. But anyway, so in this edition, you've got the Latin too. Here's the Latin. No one becomes a laughingstock who laughs at himself, is the English. Nemo risum pribuit, quiexe capit. I like that quote, no one becomes a laughingstock who laughs at himself, it makes me think of Agesilaus of Sparta. Um, you recall King Agesilaus had a limp, a congenital deformity in his leg. He was gimpy. And, and this was very disturbing to see in a Spartan king for many Spartan citizens. But here's what Plutarch says. As for his deformity... The beauty of his person in its youthful prime covered this from sight, while the ease and gaiety with which he bore such a misfortune, being first to jest and joke about himself, went far towards rectifying it. So there you go. No one becomes a laughing stock who laughs at himself. And here's quote number two. Without adversity, power shrivels. And the Latin for that is, Market sine adversario virtus. So he translates virtus there, virtue, as power, and that's appropriate. That quote actually comes from a passage in a book of his On Providence, where uh, Seneca is kind of answering this question why do so many bad things happen to good men? I think you could really see this principle. Without adversity, power shrivels. 
I think you could see that principle at work in the lives of Sertorius and Eumenes. I mean, nobody would have known how incredible these people were. And maybe they wouldn't even have become that powerful or, or that virtuous, we might say, if it weren't for the extreme adversity that they faced. And it's all because they took a stand and they faced that adversity. Without adversity, power shrivels. And that quote from De Providentia on Providence, you can go find that. And um, you could kind of use this book as a sort of reading list for Seneca. And you could use a lot of commonplace books that way. They, they, they point you to what great authors, great thinkers read, which is super valuable. Okay, number three, another. No one can rule unless he can also be ruled. Nemo autem regere potest, nisi qui et regi. No one can rule unless he can also be ruled. I mean, Seneca, you might say, he stole that sentiment right from Xenophon. Xenophon talks about this all the time. It is a Nabasis. Now, but Seneca is talking about this important Stoic principle in context, you know, ruling yourself requires you to obey yourself. You have to be able to obey yourself, first of all, uh, to, to, to take the instruction that you impose upon yourself, to, to listen to your past self who made a plan, to be able to stick to it. That is a quintessential quality of a ruler. That's a great way of formulating that. And, you know, the, the fact that this is a very parallel sentiment to what you find in Xenophon, I mean, it, when you start to keep these quotes and read these wisdom books, you start to see patterns. Here's a quote from Thomas Rick's book, First Principles, which is on what the U.S. founding fathers took from Greece and Rome. Quote, the Proverbs offered in Benjamin Franklin's Poor Richard's Almanac which is kind of one of these commonplace books, often were updated versions of Greek and Roman sayings. So Ben Franklin had his own commonplace book, and he just kind of ripped off a bunch of classical authors in a lot of places. Ricks gives an example, quote, He does not possess wealth. It possesses him. For example, that comes from the Greek philosopher Aristippus. And I would add, Seneca says similar things in various occasions. Going on here, the moral sayings of Publius Cyrus, a collection of about a thousand aphorisms that appeared in the first century BC. So you can find that, Publius Cyrus or Cyrus, S-Y-R-U-S, particularly influenced Franklin. Among them was one that Franklin quoted, a saying that lives even today in the names of a pop culture magazine and a rock music group. A rolling stone gathers no moss. End quote. Let's move on here. Here's a quote about travel. Number four. You need a change of soul, not of sky. You may cross the wide sea, but wherever you go, your faults will follow. Animum debes mutare, non caelum. Licet vastum traieceris mare, sequentur te, quocumque perveneris vitia. You need a change of soul, not of sky. You may cross the wide sea, but wherever you go, your faults will follow. So travel doesn't always solve your, your mental problems. You know, seeing as I have a business in 
people traveling to Rome for my retreat and all. You know, maybe I should try to suppress that one. I don't know. But seriously, though, I do love the letter that this comes from. It's letter 28 of Seneca's letters. This is a kind of a contrarian take. Everybody thinks that travel refreshes your mind. But, you know, it's true that, uh, as Seneca says elsewhere in the letter, one of my favorite one-liners of his, you know, if you're trying to escape your cares, they're really a part of you. And when you leave for the countryside, tecum fugis. You take yourself with you as you flee. But uh, the Latin is so concise there, and that's one of the strengths of Latin. It's, it's a lot more concise than English. Um, so, okay, going on here, you should come to Rome and uh, on cost of glory trips, but uh, remember, you will drag yourself along with you. All right, so here's a quote, number five, that you can recite to yourself as you're putting on your suit for an important meeting and you're making sure your tie looks perfect, and you're getting your little breast pocket handkerchief just right. Well, Seneca says, Philosophy calls for plain living, but not for penance. We can perfectly well be plain and neat at the same time. This is the mean of which I approve. Our life should observe a happy medium between the ways of a sage and the ways of a world at large. Frugalitatem exigit philosophia, non poinam, potest autem esse non incompta frugalitas, hic mihi modus placet, temperetur via inter bonos mores et publicos. So, Seneca there pointing out that uh, you, know, you don't have to be a dirty, barrel-dwelling Diogenes the Cynic to be a wise man. All right, number six is short and sweet. It isn't enough that you don't avoid work. Ask for it. Laborem sinon recuses parum est posque. So don't just, don't just do the work that's assigned to you. Ask for more. Suffering is, uh, or work is what, is what strengthens you. And that quote really makes me think of Sulla hustling in the camp of Gaius Marius as a junior officer when he's in North Africa. He's always going the extra mile, doing favors for people, trying to get appointed to important tasks, helping the general in any way he can. And number seven here is another quote that makes me think of Sulla too. Death follows me and life flees. Teach me how to face these problems. Make me stop trying to escape death so that my life doesn't escape me. Mors me sequitur, fugit vita. Adversus haec me doce aliquid. Efficae ut ego mortem non fugiam, vita me non effugiat. And again, death follows me and life flees. Teach me how to face these problems. This is the important part. Make me stop trying to escape death so that my life doesn't escape me. So when you try to escape death, when you try to avoid thinking about your end, then you paradoxically don't live a full life. And it really makes me think of Sulla on that hair-raising mission 
when he uses himself as bait to capture Ugurtha, which we covered in The Life of Sulla, Part 1. And there's this moment in there that's in my own commonplace book from the author Sallust, who wrote The War with Jugurtha. And you know, Sulla's scouts see Jugurtha's forces nearby, and they're vastly outnumbered. And uh, Sulla's men beg Sulla to try to escape with his life and take a few guys with him. But here's what Sallust says. Quote, Sulla boldly declared that he did not fear the Numidian, whom he had so often routed, and that he had absolute trust in the valor of his men. He added that even if inevitable destruction threatened, he would rather stand his ground than betray the men under his command, and by cowardly flight save a life that he might perhaps be fated soon to lose from natural causes. So death is inevitable. Don't try to escape it obsessively. You'll miss out on opportunities in life. Salas, by the way, a very good quotable author for your commonplace book work. And uh, here's finally number eight. It is not that we have too little time, but that we waste too much of it. Non exiguum temporis habemus, sed multum perdimus. It is not that we have too little time, but that we waste too much of it. And this one makes me think of something Sertorius did in Spain. We covered this episode of uh, the life of Sertorius way back in Cost of Glory, episode one. And here's Plutarch on what Sertorius did in Spain as a military tribune. After the war with the Cimbri and the Teutones, Sertorius was sent out as a military tribune by Didius, the praetor, to Spain, and spent the winter in Castulo, a city of the Celt-Iberians. Here the soldiers shook off all discipline in the midst of plenty and were drunk most of the time, so that the barbarians came to despise them, and one night sent for aid from their neighbors, the Oritanians, and falling upon the Romans in their quarters, began to kill them. But Sertorius, with a few others, slipped out and assembled the soldiers who were making their escape and surrounded the city. He found the gate by which the barbarians had stolen in, but did not repeat their mistake. Instead, he set a guard there, and then, taking possession of all quarters of the city, slew all the men who were of age to bear arms. Then, when the slaughter was ended, he ordered all his soldiers to lay aside their own armor and clothing, to array themselves in those of the barbarians, and then to follow him to the city from which the men came who had fallen upon them in the night. Having thus deceived the barbarians by means of the armor which they saw, he found the gate of the city open and caught a multitude of men who supposed they were coming forth to meet a successful party of friends and fellow citizens. Therefore most of the inhabitants were slaughtered by the Romans at the gate. The rest surrendered and were sold into slavery. End quote. Plutarch's life of Sertorius. So Sertorius takes two cities in one night. And you think that you don't have enough time to get done your most important work. Well, maybe you're just wasting the time that you have. It is not that we have too little time, but that we waste too much of it. So what's the thing that you're putting off till tomorrow, till reinforcements arrive, till next week? Is it starting your own commonplace practice? Well, what if you could do it now?
Thanks for listening. Stay strong. Stay ancient. This is Alex Petkus. Until next time.